Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. That's Matthew chapter 13, verses 16 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under the chair in front of you and turn to page 774. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit, inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Before I begin, I do have that picture I promised you from last week. That's it. Uh, those are the, all the OCC boxes, the Operation Christmas Child boxes that were delivered. And the second picture is the picture of a forehead. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. Daniel snapped one. Uh, the next one is yesterday our college students went and their leaders went on outreach in the city with all the the socks and the gloves that were donated. I actually saw boxes of uh, stuff that were donated. So thank you for the donations. And um, I saw some ministry pictures up on social media. So that was awesome. Uh, Last thing I wanted to share is we have donated pamphlets, uh, ministry evangelism pamphlets. So if you'd like to take one, if you know someone that you can... Uh, minister to or evangelize during this Christmas season. There are special Christmas evangelism pamphlets that you can take. I actually have a neighbor who doesn't believe in Christ, so, and it, I don't speak Korean, so it's really difficult for me. So actually there's on the side some bilingual pamphlets as well. So you're welcome to take as many as you need and want and to share the gospel during this season. Uh, let's pray before we begin. 
Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit and the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example, rendering to God the love and obedience, obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now put this closer. So, this past weekend was Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving, I hope that we remembered, is not about overconsumption as the world would see it. Thanksgiving is not about eating as much as you can and reveling in the fact that you ate and you were stuffed, just like the turkey, but it's about giving thanks, and that thanks is directed to God. Every year, except this year, Every year, I have publicly invited and announced that my family has a Thanksgiving service in the morning and that you are welcome to come and to give service. I did warn um, that it may be a three-hour service, and so no one has taken me up on it except this year. This year, someone took me up, and Kaylin showed up. So kudos to Kaylin. But the service wasn't three hours, and I just think I, I, I sold it pretty badly. Uh, I should have sold it better. So the service was only about two hours, and then we ate after, but Kaylin showed up. So I wanted to give a shout out to Kaylin. <laughs> the first time every year for about six years I've been saying this. And so I'm very happy someone showed up. Because Thanksgiving is about directing thanks. But who are you directing thanks to? And remember when the Puritans were here, when the first Thanksgiving is recorded, they had a really rough year that year. And maybe about half of their camp died. So they sent people out uh, to get as much, in their words, fowl as they could, which are birds which we now know as turkey. And they had an alliance with the neighboring uh, Native Americans, and they brought, it's recorded, about five deer or so, and they had this meal together, giving thanks to God for his provision. Even in the tough times, we remember God's provision. That's what birthed this holiday. And this is what we are to be. Even in the tough times, do we give thanks? Um, I, I think these days people, you know, they politicize everything, so we kind of lose where it all comes from. But whatever it is, I think what the main point is, is it just this holiday though? Or are you a person full of thanksgiving? And to flip that around, I'd like to ask this question. What gives you the most anxiety? What gives you the most anxiety? John, Mark Arthur, John MacArthur, he asks this question this way. What gives you most anxiety? Is it your sins or is it your misfortunes in life? What makes you really upset? 
what makes you sad and what gives you the most anxiety? Is it your sins or is it your misfortunes? And he says, that's a good test because the one that is born again is overwrought with his sin. And if you know Jesus, Sunday service is very much a thanksgiving service. Every Sunday, we are giving thanks to God for what he has done for us and what he is continuing to do and the promise of what he will do. And so we start off today's passage. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. What good deed must I do is what must I do, but there's a modifier. The modifier good is on the work he must do to earn heaven. What must I do to live forever? This man, who was young and rich, he at least knows this much. Number one, he knows that life was meant for eternity. Life was meant for eternity. Wisdom would dictate that in the heart of every person, there is a longing for eternity. And on the flip side of that very same coin, there is something very wrong with death. Life was meant for eternity. Number two, the rich young man knows at least this much. Eternity is not free. Eternity is not free. You're like, obviously, right? Because if it were free, then we'd all be living forever and looking around. Nope. So something must be done to attain or earn it. Some of you may be listening to this and think that this is Captain Obvious stuff. However, I am not so sure anymore if it's so obvious to everyone. There are those that would purport that death and loss is a part of life and the natural order of things that we must accept and that we have no control over. They would say things like, this kind of sadness is just a part of li our lives. It's just a part of life, and we tell that to ourselves. And yet, there's not just sadness, but there's anger in death. And the more you would have thought about it, this resignation, this giving up, this resignation over to death is an incredibly sad state of affairs. Atheists may continue to direct people to just accept this fate, but I find this to be impossible. The more you realize you have re received the more thankful you are, right? The more you realize you've received things, the more thankful your heart is. So who do you direct your thanksgiving to? And we always direct it to a person or a being. This would enrage the atheist, not only because he does not know who to direct his own thanksgiving to, but against the one who is most satisfied in his thanksgiving to his creator. There was a woman named Svetlana, that's a great name, Svetlana. I, I always think of all the babies being born and all the parents really like struggling on what to name their kid. No one names their kid like David or something like that anymore, or Peter, 
or Eugene. Great names, right? But no one names their kid that anymore. So I was thinking, you know what you should do? You should name your kid Olga. But no one has taken me up on Olga. Olga's a great name. Or Anastasia, but no one took that up either. Svetlana is also a great name. But there was a young girl named Svetlana. And she would ask why her father, right before he died, he would sit up on his bed, clench his fist toward the heavens, and throw his head back down to the pillow, and he was gone. The BBC reports this. Svetlana, if you didn't know, was the daughter of Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin is one of the most brutal dictators of our history. Through his socialist regime, uh, he would arrest millions of people and put them in what we know as the gulags, which are prison camps where they, do, they, where they had forced labor. Millions of people at a time would go into these gulags to do uh, forced labor and tens of millions died as a result. He was a known atheist with a, re with a rejection of God's word that was methodical. He methodically rejected and tried to eradicate God's word from all of Russia. And so going back, we're going to go back to the rich man. At least he knows eternal life must be attained with an understanding that it has something to do with goodness, though with goodness. At least he wasn't raging against God, saying he doesn't exist, but yet raging. But Jesus immediately hearing this points to the understanding of goodness. There is only one that is good. Only God is good. And our understanding of good must come from the one that is good. Our understanding of good must come from the one then the only one that is good. Only God can tell us what is good. So the rich man, rich young man, was at least able to discern that to enter into eternal life, he must not just do any deed, but he must do a good one. And Jesus shows him that the good thing that must be done can only come from God. And what is this good thing that has come from God? It's keep the commandments. Jesus points to the word of God. He does not point to some other revelation. He doesn't say something like, oh, if you want to be saved, listen for my voice when you're out by the porch drinking tea. Seriously, people have said this, but he doesn't say that. He could have said it, but he doesn't. He points to God's word. Because those are his words. If you want to know you are saved, some say, then ask for a sign or miracle. Then you'll know a bright light from heaven, perhaps. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He points to God's word. Those are his words. And we shouldn't be surprised that the only way to please God is shown in the word. Married to Esther... This is the season where we give gifts. This is a very stressful time for me. And so I'm sure for all of you too. Um, because you want to give a good gift, right? If you love someone, you want to give a good gift. But what if, what if I did this thinking, you know what? I really like to exercise. Um, these when I exercise, I need these exercise bands. They really help. They protect my wrists. So there are these bands that go around your wrists, 
and they protect it because these wrists are a joint that is fragile from overuse, it could deteriorate, so you want to have these bands. I really like that. I've studied it. The Rock uses it. And every one of his videos, he's not even working out, but he still has those wristbands. So it's pretty amazing. I want to be like The Rock. So I've studied it. I really like those wristbands. So you know what I'll do? I'll get Esther those wristbands. <laughs> do you think she would like those wristbands? What I find funny is interesting is that people think like that about God. You know what God would really like? Something that makes me happy. You know, I want to worship him in this way because I think it's good. I really like it. And doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't Esther want me to be happy? So you know what? I'm just going to get her these wristbands for Christmas and her birthday. I'll get knee pads. You know, we live in a day and age that many minimize the word of God. When even the Jesus they would claim as their Lord and Savior would point to the word of God as he points to himself. We would hear things like, you need a fresh revelation. They would say these things claiming that they are the ones now that are going to help you get this fresh revelation. So just make, call this number and make a payment of $2,020 so you can have a fresh new year. These prosperity preaching charlatans aren't the only ones in error, although their error is most grave and damning. But it's also the camps that take the word of God to use for their own benefit, focusing on the so-called, quote-unquote, gifts of the Spirit. It's these charismatic camps that would say, you don't have the full gospel if you don't have miracles or healing miracles and a spiritual manifestation such as writhing on the floor in your services. People writhing on the floor and speaking gibberish are definitely full of something, but it is not the gospel. I am sincerely concerned for the welfare of these souls and have an utter indignation to those who teach this abominable doctrine. It is bereft of truth, and it is not the gospel. There was even a church where I grew up with the name Full Gospel, derived from this very error, but they recently changed it, so praise the Lord. But there are still many others with that same name and belief, these so-called Pentecostal doctrines, that there is a second level of blessing, a second baptism, that you attain this fullness of spirit that comes with these special gifts. Some say it's a special or second baptism of fire. There is only one baptism, and it says this in Ephesians chapter 4. It is the spiritual baptism that signifies an inward change that we express outwardly through the baptism ceremony of water. There's one baptism. There isn't two baptism. There isn't a baptism for the forgiveness of sins and a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's one and the same. And I get it. In the body of believers, there can be differing opinions on interpretations of passages, but we cannot think that something that is abiblical or abiblical that is not biblical, and say we're going to purport this doctrine, and when you don't believe it, it's an interpretation difference. 
There's nothing to interpret if you're not using the word of God as a source or if you're using it completely out of context. These are things in the church that we must draw a line and we must defend the truth. This is why we have churches that now align and they call themselves Pentecostal churches, but they tell you if you are spirit-filled, you need to bark like a dog or laugh hysterically. It nowhere in the Bible have people been filled with the Holy Spirit and started barking like a dog or started to laugh hysterically. This is biblical, And people have gone from this because people want that extra revelation so bad. The Bible isn't enough. So they want it so bad. So we'll see churches, Pentecostal churches, that will say, you need to eat grass. So there's this one pastor who commanded his people in church to eat grass. So they went out and ate grass. You know why? Because they're the sheep of his pasture. So you, are, you guys are sheep. So eat grass. There's another one who forbade, his, who, who forbade his people in church from wearing underwear. Things like this take away from the church. They do not add to it like they would claim. If we could have added anything to the word, if we could have added anything to the word, who had the most reason to? Who had the most reason to add anything to the word? Who had the most fantastic revelation up to date? I'm going to read from you Second uh, Peter chapter 1. In verse 16, it starts out like this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't follow all these myths and hoopla when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What is this? This is the transfiguration. This is what we just read two weeks or three weeks ago. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He's talking about the transfiguration, the most glorious revelation that anyone has ever seen and anyone will see until Jesus' second coming. We ourselves, he continues, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What's more fully confirmed than even that revelation? Even Peter is pointing to the word. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Every single utterance in the Bible is the word of God. This is what God is teaching us about himself and that he wants us to follow. So Jesus, with the teaching of goodness and commandments, Jesus points to God and points to his word. And this hearing this, this is what the rich young man says. He goes, which ones? Which ones? All right, follow the Bible. And the response is, which ones? 
Which ones must I follow? Give me the specifics. This response should have alerted you to the lack of understanding this young man has about the word, but should also alert you to the suffering and barrenness of his soul. You know why? Living without assurance of ever being good enough is something that haunts souls. Jesus, knowing this, continues in his teaching mode. So he lays out commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, and then back to 5, and then adds, love your neighbor as yourself, which is not an addition, but what we understand to be the summation of the law in the particular commandments 5 through 10, love your neighbor as yourself. So far in this interchange, Jesus has pointed to God Knowing God's goodness and loving your neighbor as yourself, effectively pointing to the entirety of the law. And some would point out that Jesus leaves out the last one, the one forbidding covetousness, specifically on purpose to lead him to this next and last interchange. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He responds again, what do I still lack? I did all these things. Why do I still not have assurance? It is a desperate cry for help. And then Jesus responds, Mark would also add that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. You can tell how Jesus did show his love by teaching this young man through every single step, each step Jesus is teaching him. Jesus said, to be perfect, go and sell everything and follow me. This is about Selling everything to attain, it's not. This is about understanding the word perfection as Jesus means to teach us. Perfection, also commonly understood in the Old Testament, is undivided loyalty, a heart full of obedience. The perfection that is required is exactly that. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, it is a radical and absolute following of Christ. You cannot keep any part to yourself. There is zero parts that you can keep for yourself if you want to follow Christ. Some of you think, I will do this and this for Jesus. Maybe you won't say it out loud. Maybe you had me as a youth pastor, so I told you that was wrong in the first place. But you will act it. You will live it. I will give this up for Jesus. Look at me. I go to church so often, but then I will keep this part for myself. When it comes to sex, when it comes to money, I will keep these things for myself. But Christ makes it clear, you cannot keep any part to yourself. And this may seem harsh, but I would remind you of last week's message where we saw in marriage, there is a complete giving of ourselves to each other, us to Christ, Christ to us. You can't keep one part of your heart from your spouse and expect a healthy marriage. And if you truly are one, 
and there is no division of loyalty. How much more so to not just our bridegroom, but to the king. To be a disciple, you must surrender yourself. That is the call of the gospel. This is what is good news to the believer, because they know that if you keep any part of yourself, any part that we do keep for ourselves, gets ruined and is ruined. Because God is the one that renews and restores. This condition that Jesus lays down for the rich young men may be seemingly something that goes beyond the law. I thought he was pointing to the law, but isn't this over? But obeying the law would have culminated in following Jesus. You say you want to know the very minimum, the specifics. What can I do to attain or earn eternal life? And Jesus does lay down the law. And it is with the absolute humility of a child, absolute allegiance to Jesus Christ. This absolute allegiance can only come with the heart and humility of a child that is following their heavenly father. But this young man had attachments too deep into the things of the world, and he couldn't let it go. He couldn't let it go. That's why this is so sad. But the law was also able to reveal the true nature of the man's heart and where his true loyalties lie. Following the law as some set of rules to comply with, as if compliance alone would bring joy to the Father, is debunked by Jesus himself and further shows us the worthlessness of complying just for compliance's sake because it does not entail full surrender. If you were in a smaller group, I made you all uh, read um, a little excerpt from Bonhoeffer's discipleship. But here's a smaller excerpt from that. It's about cheap grace. It's when we desire cheap grace. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, the living incarnate. Cheap grace, what people really desire, does not have Jesus Christ. It's bereft, like I said, of the truth. This is what people want. Give me something that I can follow. Oh, I heard from this guy that you can just do this. And you're saved and, you know, huge. you're saying something else. It's like, no, this is exactly what the Bible has been teaching us over and over again. Because the young man leaves. The young man leaves because when it came down to Jesus or money, money wins. The word reveals the true nature of the heart. And the heart is found wanting. Jesus goes to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I heard someone say when they were preaching on this passage that Jesus is making a joke because Jesus is a funny guy. 
I don't think this is funny. I think he was dead serious. And the disciples definitely weren't laughing, not because they didn't have a sense of humor. humor. But Jesus starts off this serious statement. We know it's not a joke. He's not like, look, it's a camel and a needle, ha, 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 and rich people are suckers. That's, that's what people think of it as. And I don't think you're reading the Bible right because he starts with, truly I say to you. Truly I say to you, we know, means amen. Amen is translated, truly I say to you. So Jesus starts off by literally going, amen. So you don't go, I'm amen, and t- tell a knock-knock joke. He goes, amen. A rich person entering the kingdom of heaven is so difficult. It's so difficult that it's easier for a camel. A camel at the time in Palestine was the biggest animal that they would witness or see. So if you said a camel, a picture of a camel would have come to your mind. Elephants were more in the Babylonian area, right? So they would have seen a camel. They didn't have internet, so it wasn't like they can zip through the biggest animal instas. And so... Camel was the biggest animal that they would have known, the biggest creature. And they're saying, it's easier for a camel, the biggest creature you know, to go through the eye of a sewing needle. It's not just any needle, but in the Greek, it's the sewing needle. We even have trouble putting thread in the sewing needle. We're just like, oh, what is this? And then you miss. And he goes, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle We could barely put a thread in the eye of a sewing needle, and yet here Jesus references a camel which is so big that would fit into the smallest hole. So this hyperbolic metaphor that Jesus is using is a serious one. That's how difficult it is for someone rich to get into heaven, and this has nothing to do with poor people getting into heaven. Being poor doesn't get you into heaven with a free pass. And if that's what you'll get out of this, then you miss the entire point of the exchange. Because why? Because of how the disciples responded. The disciples were greatly astonished. They weren't rich. They weren't rich. But they were so astonished. And this is what they asked. Who then can be saved? The rich can't get into heaven? Then who can be saved? That's the kind of question they're asking. Because there was a view that the Jews had. And it was, number one, blessings are from God. This is true. This is true. Blessings are from God. So number two, if you are rich, that means God has blessed you more than others. This is also true. This means you have more, which means that you have more of this blessing. Number three, if God has blessed you more than others, then maybe in some way you are closer to God. And this logic made sense because if I had, let's say blessings were M&M's, and so I had a vat full of M&M's, and I just took a handful of M&M's, and I just started spraying it like across this room. Who would get most of it? It's the people up front. The people closer would get more. So that's why the disciples ask it in this manner. So even if the rich even can't get saved, who can get saved? That's the question that they're asking. And Jesus does not disagree with the presupposition of the question. Do you see here? He doesn't disagree with the presupposition of the question, but he responds to it and he answers it. And he says this, with man this, with man this meaning the salvation of anyone, with man this meaning the salvation of anyone is impossible, but with God 
all things are possible. Salvation is possible with God and only with God. Then we see Peter give this response. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Look, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. Like, I don't know how many of us can actually say that here. But he adds, what do we get out of it then? Now I have left everything. What do we get out? This is a mercenary-like response. The synonym for mercenary is money-grubbing, rapacious, or covetous. Even through all of this previous exchange, Peter is responding. And not just Peter, because he speaks for all the disciples. They want some kind of reward. This is not a good response. But Jesus answers in what at first may seem a little bit difficult, but what we see here clearly is a rebuke, albeit it's a very gentle one because of verse 30. We see it's a gentle rebuke. But this gentle rebuke is to serve as an encouragement because what the disciples receive is infinitely greater than what they had given up. When God returns to his glory, the twelve will also sit on 12 thrones, each judging the tribes of Israel. These are not the same things that they've given up on what they're going to receive. I can't have someone give me 100 tons of gold, and I give them five bucks, and I go, okay, let's call it even. That makes no sense. I can't receive 100 tons of gold, and I'd be like, here's five bucks, and we'll be even. This is not a reward that is equal to what they have given up. But Jesus goes beyond that to show them this incredible encouragement to the disciples. This is what I'm going to give you. Not only that, but Jesus extends this encouragement to all who follow him. Those that have sacrificed in the name of Jesus. Listen to these words. And everyone who has left their houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. If you took it literally, you would see that if you left a house for Jesus' sake, he will give you a hundred houses. You'd be like, hmm, that, that's not bad. So if you left your mom for Jesus' sake, you will receive a hundred moms. Obviously, this isn't literal. God doesn't owe us anything. God is not in debt to anyone. But we see this as a blessing God is giving, a blessing that is so full of real grace that is beyond anything that we ever could deserve with the sacrifice, with the meager sacrifice that we give. We see this blessing even play out in the church today and growing. In this messianic community, the church that Jesus establishes, we see that we are surrounded by fathers, mothers, sisters, and brothers. And will be even more so when we finally join all the brethren in heaven. This is an, an incredible encouragement that Jesus is giving his disciples. But, here's verse 30, but, here's the gentle rebuke and correction. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. 
he clearly does explain this further. Like this passage doesn't technically end here, but it goes to the next parable in chapter 20, which we'll do next week. But there is an ordering. This is basically what he's saying. There isn't, so this, this, uh, this sermon is part one, but there is an ordering that will be subverted in the current world that will not be in the kingdom of heaven. This ordering that is in the current world will not be in the kingdom of heaven and will be subverted. This is further explained by that parable that we'll see in chapter 20. But here it is. We think that entering the kingdom is about faith, okay? This is what we think. We think that entering the kingdom is about faith. I have faith, so I have this assurance of heaven. But our definition of faith is what I'm going to challenge. What is your definition of faith? By saying, I have faith, are you saying that you are doing something to merit by thinking something, by believing something, it is your work that believes or does or you know, thinks something. Because you know what? It's been hardwired into our system that if I ask you why you think God will let you into the kingdom, the common response for many people who have grown up in the church will be because I have faith. That is the common response that I expect. Faith then becomes this thing that you do. And it's impossible to change this understanding because it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye. We are no different from the rich man because there is no understanding in our worldview that gets around what Jesus is teaching because salvation must be earned. There is no other way. It is not free and it is impossible with us, but it is possible with God. We do earn salvation by works. This is going to blow your minds, but we do earn salvation by works, but by the works of Christ. We earn salvation by the works of Christ. We do not and cannot and will not do these works on our own. By saying faith is saying, I have not earned it, nor can I ever earn it, but I cling on to the one who has earned it. That's what faith is. If you realize this, then your life is changed because you see material goods in a different way. You see money in a different way. Alistair Begg writes this, hold materials and goods and wealth in a flat palm instead of a clenched fist. When we don't know Christ, everything here, even though it's temporal, becomes the only things that we have. So we hold it very tightly. We never want to let it go. And that's why the young rich man could not let it go. He was holding it so tightly. But when you see Jesus and when you understand what Jesus has done and what God does, we understand that these things are given to us by God. And so we are able to trust him and we hold an open palm. If you want to know if your life has been changed by Christ, by the teaching of his word, by the transformation of your heart by the Holy Spirit, that's the question I would ask. How do you see material goods? How do you see material goods? This world will continue for centuries on end. It will continue and will still continue to tell you 
You know what? This means you are blessed. This is yours. Close your fist around it. It's yours. God wants you to have it. And we call this thing self-love. We think self-love is this recent thing that people are sharing and people are trying to teach. It is not. People have been teaching it from centuries ago. And this is what Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan in the 1600s, would say. He would write this, self-love is self-hatred. The world will teach you, you got to love yourself. You got you to gotta do you, you know. You got to love yourself. You know, you got to have me days, you know, me, M-E days. But he says self-love is self-hatred. The man who cannot get beyond himself will never get to heaven. The more busy we are holding these things, we are not holding something else. And when we hold a flat palm, what Jesus does is he comes and takes us by our own hand, and we are carried through into eternity. What is impossible with man, because we have nothing else to hold on to, so every little thing we'll hold on to is possible with God, because God is the one that changes the heart. What you held on so tightly before. When I mentioned there are some things that we always hold back, isn't it true when it comes to sex? Isn't it true when it comes to money? Don't we hold things back? Look at your actions. Look at your thoughts. You are holding these things back from God. It's impossible for you to attain salvation. Jesus Christ shows us there is a way that is possible, not by you, not by the works that you do, but by the works of him. He is the one that will make it possible. That's why we change from this to this. And what we are given now is a holding of the hand to hand, and he is the one that carries us to heaven. We must get beyond ourselves, but we will never get beyond ourselves outside of ourselves. That's the conundrum that Socrates and Plato, they all had to go through. Even like 300 BC, they were like, we, there's no way. There's no way to attain this because we only know ourselves. Someone from outside has to come in. And that's exactly what happens 300 years later. Someone from outside comes in. And Jesus Christ shows us not just a better way, but he shows us the only way. And this is what we are to do. Are there things in your life that you are holding on to so tightly then we need to not be like this young rich man who knew only just enough that he knew that he needed assurance. But we need to go beyond by the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to understand that it's God that is knocking and breaking those doors open in your heart so that you will fully see that it's only through Jesus Christ that you can be saved. I want to finally go back to the middle part and just remind us again, how is that possible? With the humility of a child. Pray that your heart is changed. There's no other way. Every step we take, our, 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 fists, our fists get more clenched because our hearts get more hardened. It didn't matter how old, but even just this young man, as young as he was, he was already this way. So ask God for this mercy and he will not get, offer you cheap grace, but he will offer you real grace. And know that it's the Holy Spirit that is changing your heart as you listen to the word. Let's pray.